Good morning. What a privilege to come to worship together today and to sing songs of praise to God and to witness those uh, beautiful girls uh, professing their faith in Christ. Uh, I was struck by Madison and Bethany and Abby and the, the simplicity and purity of their devotion to Christ. And then now we have the opportunity to open up God's word together. What a privilege. So we are starting today in our study of the book of Hebrews. So please turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 this morning. And please stand with me as we read God's word. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that it is strong and powerful, and that you want to do something in our lives today as a result of it. We pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. Like cold water to a weary soul, the first few verses of Hebrews brings encouragement and comfort and assurance. They are deeply theological, solidly doctrinal, and immensely practical and personal. The opening paragraph of Hebrews reveals the theme of the book, which is the greatness and glory of Jesus in his person and his work. The greatness of Jesus is seen in who he is and what he does. It's one of the most beautiful statements of the preeminence of Jesus ever written, ever given. Right from the start, Hebrews places Jesus at the pinnacle, making clear his supremacy his superiority, the fact that there is no one higher and no one better than Jesus. Now, the question of who wrote Hebrews has been a matter of debate for centuries. The writer is anonymous. He's not identified in the text. But there are a lot of opinions out there. Names that have been suggested over the years and are either accepted as a prevalent view during a certain time or rejected over time are Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, Luke, Philip, Silas, and even Clement of Rome. But there's no clear support for any of these. But I want to tell you today that I actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. God did. 
In fact, you could say it was a team of at least four writers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the human author. But the fact that the human writer actually remained anonymous and that God kept them anonymous is awesome because it all the more vividly portrays Jesus as preeminent. It, it shows the supremacy of Christ all the more. Now, when was the book written? Some think the book was written before A.D. 68, and some think it was written after A.D. 80. Now, the writer of Hebrews refers to the temple worship, which suggests that it was written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I like a date around 60, uh, A.D. 68 or 69, One of the reasons is because the present tense is used often in Hebrews, in fact, throughout the book, which would seem to indicate that the priesthood that it's talking about was still in operation at the time it was written. Whatever the case, to understand the message of Hebrews, we need to understand uh, who it was written to. The focus on the priesthood, uh, the focus on sacrifices, the fact that there's no mention of Gentiles, points to, the, to a community of Hebrews that were addressed. Uh, three groups in particular. Primarily, Jews who were Christians, but were weak and immature, and were tempted to go back to their old way of life. Secondly, Jews who were convinced about Jesus, but not yet born again. They were intellectually convinced. And thirdly, Jews who were unconvinced and not born again. I believe that the writer is trying to to teach and to encourage believers, but also to shake from complacency those who did not believe but were part of the community. Very much like the modern day church. Believers in that time, and these Jewish believers in particular, were facing uh, imminent persecution. They were tempted then to really throw away their identification with Jesus. They may, and this is going to sound really crazy, but they may have even toyed with the idea of of, um, moving Jesus in their minds and in, in their community Uh, from the status of the Son of God to an angel. And the the Qumran community actually had added the worship of angels to their brand of Judaism. They had even gone so far as to say that that Michael the archangel was higher in rank than the Messiah. So the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing the superiority of Jesus over angels, angels, as we shall see in in weeks to come, over Moses, over the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices, and over everything else. Now, to many, Hebrews is one of the most difficult books in the New Testament. You might be thinking, okay, you're the rookie senior pastor. What are you doing tackling Hebrews? What this will do will keep me very, very dependent week by week, trusting God one sermon at a time. But to understand the meaning of Hebrews, we need to understand the Old Testament background of Hebrews. Some people get stuck when they come to verses 
like you see in chapter 9, verse 13, which talks about the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled. And they think, well, what does this have to do with my life? Now, the author of Hebrews believed it had nothing to do with the true, true relationship with Jesus. But he was writing to people who thought it did. Israel's sin, historically, had kept getting in the way of their relationship with God, their fellowship with him. And so in his grace, God had instituted a sacrificial system that illustrated two things. It illustrated both the inward repentance of believers, but also the forgiveness of God. The need for the sacrifices, though, never ended because the people couldn't stop sinning. I think we can relate to that. Mankind then needed a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice that would do away with the problem of sin forever. That God provided that solution in Jesus is the basic message of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews uses images that are hard to understand. They're difficult. But Hebrews speaks to where we live today. In a day of shaking foundations, it speaks of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It reminds us to not be content with the status quo, but to press on toward maturity. When we're tempted to be discouraged, it reminds us to press on to our eternal home. It speaks of true worship having Nothing to do with external things, but everything to do with the internal heart issues. And more than any other book in the New Testament, Hebrews deals with Jesus' present ministry that he is accomplishing on our behalf right now, today. In these opening lines of the book of Hebrews, we see the greatness of Jesus revealed. And we, we see it revealed in his roles as prophet, priest, and king. First of all, Jesus is the prophet that God spoke through. In verse 1, the fact that God spoke is basic to this entire letter, but it's also basic to the entire Christian faith. That God used words to declare his mind and disclose his thoughts. And that if God had not spoken, we would be in a desperate situation today. If he had remained silent, if he had not revealed himself to us. But he did speak. And he spoke his perfect, powerful word. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Now, prior to Jesus, God spoke to mankind in many times and places and ways. Verse 1 tells us that God spoke in the prophets. He spoke to the fathers and the prophets. And that when they heard the message, they heard the prophet speaking, but they heard God speak through the prophet. Verse 1 tells us that he spoke in many portions. The fact that the Old Testament is written in 39 different books that were uh, by various means and at different times and places. And that God spoke in many ways. By direct revelation, by dreams, by visions, by symbols, by stories. 
There was this progressive nature to God's revelation to mankind. But not progressive in the sense that it went from less true to more true, or less powerful to more powerful, but in the sense that it went from promise to fulfillment. That God's people did not see the fulfillment of his promises in their lifetime. That God had provided something better for them and for us. You see, Jesus is God's ultimate word to mankind. In earlier times, God gave his word through prophet, priest, poet, singer. But verse 2 tells us that in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. The last days began when Jesus was born. And the message spoken in Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic promises, the prophecies. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. F.F. Bruce said this, All the successive acts... And the various modes of revelation in the ages before Christ came did not add up to the fullness of what God had to say. His word was not completely uttered until Christ came. But when Christ came, the word spoken in him was indeed God's final word. In him all the promises of God meet with the answering yes which seals their fulfillment to his people and evokes from them an answering, Amen. So be it. You see, the revelation of God's salvation in the Old Testament had been made known and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the prophet God spoke through and therefore the one we are to listen to. Through him, God had chosen to spoke, speak his final word to mankind. Now that tells me something. That tells me that I can be encouraged by the fact that God intimately knows me, that he is acquainted with all my ways, that he knows me, but that he also speaks to me. God speaks. Now, some of you are not on speaking terms with certain individuals. Hopefully that's not the case of anyone in this room right now. But there are people in your life that some of you are not on speaking terms with. Whatever tweaked the relationship, you do not talk to one another. I've heard of people who for years have not talked to a brother or a sister, a mother or a father, because of something that happened in the past. Whatever the case, now you're silent. But you talk to people And with people you enjoy being around, people you like, people you love. God wants to be on speaking terms with us. 
God speaks, we listen. We pray, God hears. Jesus is the prophet that God spoke through. He is also the priest that made final purification for sin. We're going to study this in greater detail as we go through this book because the priesthood of Christ is really the most developed idea in Hebrews. But in the Levitical priesthood, the priest was selected as a representative for the people. As a representative for the people, he would go before God to offer sacrifices on their behalf to atone for their sin. And the priest had to be chosen by God. It was necessary for him to be human in order to represent mankind adequately. Jesus met these requirements perfectly in his earthly life and ministry. Jesus is our perfect representative. He possesses all the qualifications of the purpose perfect mediator between God and man. In verse 3, we read that he made purification of sins. Instead of offering a bull or a goat, as the Levitical priest would do, Jesus sacrificed himself. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he did this, God did this by himself. And then in verse 3, we read that after he had made purification of sins, he sat down. It it is significant that Jesus sat down. In contrast to the priests who kept standing because their work of sacrifice was never done. It was never finished. It never came to an end. But as the priest of God and the acceptable sacrifice for sin, Christ has guaranteed to every believer... Every born-again believer in Christ entrance into the very presence of God. Access. Direct access to God himself. Now there are some places on earth we are not allowed into. Maybe we don't have a ticket. Maybe we don't have the right clothes on. Maybe we don't know the right person. There's a lot of places that we're excluded from going. But with God, we not only have entrance into his presence, we have an immediate hearing of our requests. It's amazing that humanly speaking, we could be shut out from so many places because we're not of the right standing or rank But with God Almighty, the maker of all, we have direct, free access into his presence by the blood of Christ. And because Jesus is our priest, we can come to God freely in faith and worship. As high priest who was called by God and who is one with humanity, Jesus met our every need. In chapter 2, in verse 14, it says, The children share in flesh and blood. Now, since that is so, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. 
had the power of death. Past tense. That is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That is good news for you and me today. That Jesus has met our need and we can come straight to Jesus. He was the perfect and final sacrifice. Now knowing this, knowing this can keep us from one of the most common temptations that believers encounter. And it's this. To doubt that our sin really is forgiven. To wonder if maybe we have sinned so much that Christ couldn't possibly have meant me. Others maybe, but not me. That's really rooted in fear, which does not come from God, and pride, which also does not come from God. It was beautiful to see Madison and Bethany and Abby this morning. They don't doubt. They come to Christ in childlike faith. And so must we. We totally depend on Jesus for our purification. And while we walk around day to day, we don't feel so pure sometimes. But the fact is that positionally, Jesus, when he took all our sin upon himself, and when he draws us to himself in faith, and we are born again by the Spirit of God, we are purified. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. He died for our sins. He accomplished the perfect work of purification and cleansing for the sins of his people. So that we do have assurance that our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. In Hebrews 10, verse 11, we read about the Levitical priests. That every priest stands, not sits, stands daily ministering and offering time after time, the same sacrifices. Which can never take away sins. But he, verse 12, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, Look at verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time, for all time, those who are sanctified, those who are being made holy, is good news for you and me. More good news. As the old hymn goes, Jesus paid it all. 
All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He has washed it white as snow. Our assurance comes from the fact that Jesus did what no other priest could do. Now Jesus is the prophet that God spoke through. He is our great high priest. And lastly, he is the king who reigns forever. The king. Verse 4 tells us that he has become much better than the angels. If anyone was tempted to think that possibly he was not, all they had to do was think about this name that was more excellent, that was better, this name of Jesus. Verse 3 tells us that he sat down At the right hand of the majesty on high, picturing a throne. Now, this does not refer to a literal location in terms of the majesty on high being at a certain address, as we know it. It's another name for God. It's one of the earliest affirmations of Christian faith, the majesty on high. It goes back to what Jesus said in applying Psalm 110 to himself. Look at Matthew 22, in verse 44. The Pharisees, coming to Jesus, antagonizing him, and saying, So, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Excuse me. They, he asked them that. And they say, the son of God. And he says to them, Jesus says to the Pharisees, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. No one could answer him. Jesus applies this to himself. Verse 13 of chapter 1 in Hebrews says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? They knew that God didn't have a physical throne or a physical right hand where he sat. But the language told them that Christ was exalted as king and therefore supreme. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The psalmist in Psalm 2, speaking of the Son, says this. Verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And then verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, O human kings, show discernment. Take warning. 
And in verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence. Verse 12, do homage to the Son. Kiss the Son, literally. Kiss the Son as coming to a king. Isaiah 9, 7 told us before Jesus came that his kingdom would have no end. That he would sit over the th- on the throne of David. Paul said about the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 10 by saying that Christ ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And in Philippians 2.9 when he said that God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. Jesus sits enthroned in the place, in the chief place of honor. He reigns forever. And therefore, he is to be worshipped as king. The people of Jesus' day even were going to take him and make him king by force. That's not the type of king we're talking about. We're talking about king of the universe. So we owe him our allegiance. Isn't it sad that we show honor and respect for some of the most dishonorable and disrespectful people? Be they famous movie stars or politicians or athletes. People who often live dishonorable lives and we show them immense honor and respect. How much more ought we to come to God as one who is holy and awesome and powerful? Sons and daughters of the king who can come freely, who can come to him without reservation, to the one who loves them with an everlasting love, but nonetheless coming respectfully and honorably to him. To him who has that most excellent name. How do these first few verses of Hebrews speak to us today? I trust that God through his word is speaking to us. And first and foremost, I would say that there is this fact that we quite literally depend upon Jesus for our very existence. For everything. He is our very life as Colossians Three, four states. Several statements in this passage confirm this idea. The fact that in verse 2, he is appointed heir, which shows that the inheritance is his. He's heir of all things. That there was only one son, which means only one heir, and that ultimately all will come under the power and control and sovereignty of Jesus. The world is also his. Verse 2, the world was made through him. He made time, space, energy, matter, everything to make it function properly. And the glory is his. It says in verse 3 that he is the radiance of God's glory. That the Shekinah glory of God radiated from him. That he is the exact representation of the nature of God. Literally the perfect character The Greek word is character, the stamp of God who spoke through him and in him. 
and the universe, the entire universe is his. The verse 3 tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. You're going through some difficult situation today? He is upholding all things by the word of his power. Everything is covered. He is sustaining all he made by his powerful word. That tells me that that I can be confident that all is in his care. That we have a great God who holds us in the palm of his hands. That he is our creator. He made us. He knows us. He understands us. And he sees our every need. He, He hears us when we call as the song goes. Quickly go over to Luke 4. In Luke 4, in verse 16, Jesus, during his public ministry, would go into the synagogues and teach. And people were praising him for his teaching. And he came into Nazareth and the city he had been brought up, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It was his custom of doing so. And he stood up to read. And he took Isaiah, the prophet, which was handed to him, and he opens the book, and he finds a specific place. Now look at verse 18. This is what Jesus read in the synagogue that day. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now he closed the book and then he sat down. Now how could Jesus say what he said next? In verse 21, he said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right then, right now, he says, it's just been fulfilled. How could he say that? Because he's the prophet God spoke through. And who God is speaking through. Go to John 21. John 21, Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter had basically decided to go back and be a fisherman. You know, I've messed up. I've I've gone too far. I've I've denied Jesus three times. I've said I didn't even know him. There's nothing left for me to do than go back to my old profession. I'll, I'll be a fisherman. So he says to his compadres, let's go fishing. I'm going fishing. You know, who's with me? Well, you know what happened. They didn't catch a thing all night. Goes back to the old job and nothing works. Then they see Jesus on the beach. He gives them some instructions. Tells them where to find the catch. Provides those fish. They come back to land. Peter jumps in the water. Comes back to land. They're eating breakfast. And then Peter is taken aside by Jesus. Look at over to verse 15. 
They finish breakfast and Jesus says to Simon, you love me more than these? We don't know if he was talking about the fish or the disciples, but whatever the case, he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And so then Jesus says, tend my lambs. And then he says to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, well, then shepherd my sheep. And again, a third time, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then Peter is grieved because of this third request. And he says, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. And he goes on, and in this this context, he reinstates Peter to his position. Peter hadn't gone too far because Jesus' reach reached even to him. And he reached even to me. And he reaches even to you. And how could Jesus say that to Peter? How could he forgive Peter and reinstate him into his position of apostle? Because he's the priest who made the sacrifice once for all for Peter's sins and for your sins and for mine. One more. Go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, Jesus has, again, risen from the dead. He's speaking to his disciples. The 11 who are left. And they go to the mountain that Jesus tells them to go to. And they see Jesus and they worship him. They worship him as king. But some of them were still doubting. And then here's what Jesus said in verse 18. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. And how could Jesus claim all authority? Because he is the king who reigns and is reigning and will reign forever. These first few verses of Hebrews bring us immense comfort and encouragement and assurance and confidence. They're deeply theological, solidly doctrinal, but immensely personal and practical at the very same time. And it tells me something, that if Jesus is all that, then I have nothing to worry about or fear. Everything is covered. I had to remind myself about that on the way to to grace this morning. Again, as I was worrying about many things, about delivering this sermon, about other issues in life, and then I remembered that he is upholding all things according to the word of his power. It's a good thing I have the Bible on CD. And I was listening to this passage. It also tells me something else. It tells me that if Jesus is so great and we know he is so great, then no burden is greater. He daily bears our burdens. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. And because Jesus is everything this passage says he is, I can then, I can then relax and know he is God. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know 
Relax, be still, let go of everything, and know that I am God. Isn't that tough for us to do that? Well, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I know that I don't have to fear. Isaiah 41.10 says, what does he say? Do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will uphold you. Now in a way, Hebrews is this really long sermon. We're going to go through it in a year. But Hebrews is this long sermon filled with really great Bible exposition of Old Testament passages pointing to one primary truth. The greatness of Jesus in who he is and what he does. And the greatness of Jesus is evident from the, from the onset. God led with Jesus and so must we. You know how hard it is after you haven't led with Jesus, to come and bring Jesus back into a conversation or a workplace or even a home. Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Have you listened to the message of this prophet? Have you been cleansed by the sacrifice of this priest? Is this king enthroned in your life? How great is Jesus to you? Basically, are you Christ-centered? Are we Christ-centered? You'll know if you are when you go through trials. That's where... The rubber meets the road. So what does it mean to be Christ-centered? I'll take you to John the Baptist. Go to John chapter 3. They kept asking John, are you the Christ? He says, I'm not the Christ. I've been the, I'm the one who was sent ahead of him. And he said something else. John chapter 3, verse 29, he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bride who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. I must decrease. That's what it means to be Christ-centered. We are decreasing. Jesus is increasing. Yesterday... uh, a number of dads and sixth grade boys went playing laser tag in the afternoon. And uh, when I got there, I was expecting teams. You know, one team versus the other and good versus evil and all that. Of course, I'd be on the good side and all that. And uh, we get in the room that they're going to you know, prep us, and it's, it's basically every man for himself. It's like anarchy, you know, just shoot away, you know, just don't get hit and shoot everyone else. And I was thinking... As I was standing there going, this is a lot like life. Every man for himself. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, all for yourself. Isn't that easy to start looking at life that way? Shoot or be shot. 
And we can view life like that. It's really easy to slip into that mode. But that is not what God intends. See, Jesus took all the hits for us. When we're self-centered, we can't be Christ-centered. And if we're going to be Christ-centered as individuals and as families and as a church, it means we're going to have to take our eyes off ourselves and put them on Jesus. Even take our eyes off of other people and put our eyes on Jesus. Even as a community that we walk together by faith, supporting one another, we need to have our eyes on Jesus. See, he's the one that made purification for sins. He still speaks. He took initiative toward us. The stain, it was removed. The stone, it was rolled away. All debts were removed. That's what the love of God has done. Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is our everything. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you are who you are and who you say you are. And we thank you, Lord God, for your goodness, your greatness, your awesome power. And Lord, we lay ourselves before you today, asking that you would be the central focus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand with me and I'll read a verse that sums it up from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God bless you.